Welcome to Box Stampede Radio. A voice that I always enjoy having in my locker room. As as <laughs> of course, it's Adam Munster. But you can't put that kind of pressure on your team. And they were so sick of hearing Dan, reading Dan Hoffman's quotes, listening to Dan Hoffman's audio. And we've got a job to do. I had to go out there every day and present you know, the material. You can't just cover spring ball without with, with ignoring everything the head coach says. The transition is <laughs> absolutely impeccable. Welcome back to the Blake Street Tavern here. William Whalen, Buff Stampede Radio. We are joined today by... Senior writer of BuffStampede.com, Ryan Konigsberg, who is actually in the bathroom right now, so he won't have anything to say to you. But my man Tyler Ziskin here, fan correspondent for BuffStampede.com. Tyler, how are you doing today? We're doing a full basketball episode. It should be some fun. Yeah, uh, not every day we get to do the full basketball ones. It's uh, you know another another survival weekend, I guess you could yep. say, for the Buffs. Um, you know, kind of a what they needed to do to stay alive. I don't think anyone's super surprised by the results, but it's uh, definitely important as we move through the season. So, yeah, absolutely. And as you said, they've done what they need to do. Uh, a few weeks ago, when we talked about some of the things that this team was going to need to do, we talked about holding serve at home against Washington and Washington State. Of course, they really needed those two home home wins. They really needed to split the road trip in LA, which they did. Uh, and, of course, we'll talk more about what they have ahead of them. But as we just said, the Buffs did split that road trip in Southern California, falling 92-74 to against UCLA, one of the most misleading final scores you will see. You know, that game was a, a six-point game with a minute and a half left. Of course, UCLA hits free throws. They hit some threes down the stretch. And, you know, Kyle Brown doesn't get any of that. Uh, and, of course, that's what can turn a six-point game into an 18-point game very quickly. Then the Buffs go ahead to the Galen Center to take on the USC Trojans and find a way to win, despite things getting a little interesting late. The Buffs were in control of that game for much of regulation. And, of course, they walk away with an 83-74 to win. The Buffs moved to 19-7 and on the trip and 8-5 and in Pac-12 play, looking at yet another 20-win season under Tad Boyle. Something that is, I, you, you can't say enough about it. I mean, he owns, what was it, they've had 15, 18-win seasons in the more than 100 years that Colorado's been playing basketball. And he has four of them. In four yeah, years. Yeah. In all, four, all years. four years. Has been I mean. And I don't know the exact number on how many 20-win seasons we've had, but I bet he owns more than, almost if not more than half, or right around half of those in the program's history. So it's pretty pretty incredible. It is pretty incredible. And guys, our first our first little subject here on the production plan uh, is our top storylines for the week. But I want to give everybody a quick preview about some of the things that we'll be talking about today on Bus Stampede Radio. Uh, we're going to talk about this team kind of rounding in a form and, and really the maturation of a couple players in specific on this roster. Number one, Tyler Siskin's favorite Buffalo, Xavier Talton, the young sophomore guard from Sterling, California, has really turned things on lately. Then we're going to talk about Askia Booker and the way that he has continued to progress. Did you say Sterling, California? Did I say Sterling, California? He did. That's My mind is on California. My mind is on California. I need to leave this state. Sterling, Colorado, of course, for Xavier Talton. As I said, we're also going to look into Askia Booker. His play of late has been nothing short of outstanding. Uh, Tad Boyle said today he's playing the best ball of his career, as did Askia. Uh, so we're going to look at him some more. 
We're looking at Xavier Johnson, uh, the Los Angeles, California native from Modern Day High School in Santa Ana, and kind of the way he's rounded into form as well. And then we're going to touch on three other players, one of whom is Dustin Thomas. And the struggles that we've seen the young Texarkana native go through lately uh, because, frankly, he's just not getting it done in the way that some people expected a player of his talent uh, to do in his freshman campaign. Then touch on Wesley Gordon and Treshawn Fletcher, the two injured Buffaloes. Uh, of course, Wes with an ankle, Treshawn with a knee. We're told that Wes will play this week, Treshawn not. But we'll go into that a little bit more in depth. Then we'll preview Arizona State and Arizona. As you said, Tyler, a big kind of survival weekend coming up here in Boulder. And we're going to talk extensively, of course, about the Arizona Wildcats uh, and what has kind of blossomed into a young but fierce rivalry, I think, uh, between Arizona and Colorado. And then if we have some extra time, we're going to talk about everybody's favorite subject, and that is attendance at the Coors Event Center and why in year four of the Tad Boyle era, it is down for the first time. So guys, let's jump into it. Uh, our top storylines for CU Hoops this week. For me, my top storyline is Wednesday night, 9 p.m., when the Arizona Sun State Sun Devils walk into Coors Event Center, having beaten Colorado three out of the last four times, including in Boulder last year, how do the Buffs respond to a team that is as talented and right now maybe more so talented than them at home the night before senior night in a game that you got to have? In a game that you really got to have because you can't bank on going into the Bay Area and winning both. You can't bank on even going into Salt Lake City at the Huntsman Center, which is now second in attendance this year in the Pac-12. Utah's arena has been pretty rowdy this year. You can't bank on those games. So you really got to have Arizona State. I want to see how this team responds to a team that has pushed them around of late. I want to see how Eskia Booker plays. He struggled in Tempe in every facet of the game. I want to see how Josh Scott plays going against the top shot blocker in the country in Jordan Pachinski and a guy who knocked him out, literally, of last year's matchup in Boulder. I want to see how that goes and how this team responds. So that's my top storyline of the week. Ryan, what is yours? Yeah, I'm going to take it a little more narrow, and you touched on it a little bit there. But to me, it, it is that matchup of Josh Scott and Jordan Bachinski. Um, when they went into Tempe, that was an absolute disaster. Uh, you can't really put it any other way. But if there was one silver lining, it seemed at the end of the game, Josh Scott kind of figured out his offense against Jordan Bachinski. I don't remember what he finished with in that game, but... In the second in the second half, he kind of figured out how he needs to work Jordan Bachinski and, and how he's going to score against him. I want to see if Josh, you know, can take that, watch the film on that, and turn that into a solid performance. Because when you look at the games that they've won since Spencer went down, they've won it in games where Askia Booker, Xavier Johnson, and Josh Scott played played well. If you take if Jordan Bachinski is able to take Josh Scott out of that game. Then it gets a little bit dangerous for the Buffs in terms of putting all of their eggs into, you know, Askia Booker and Xavier Johnson with with maybe hoping for one other guy. They really need Josh Scott to capitalize on that confidence that he built against Baczynski and not allow him to knock him out uh, literally or figuratively in this game. Yeah, I think, I think Baczynski is obviously the key for Arizona State as well. Um, he, he doesn't just take Josh out of games. He takes everybody out of games. Yeah. We've, you can see that we're 
we're scared is probably not the right term, but the Buffs have really finished or struggled to finish around the rim um, with Baczynski in the game. Uh, he's been able to affect, you know, everybody going to the hole, they're not taking good quality shots. They're really letting his presence affect their quality of shot as they get to the basket. And they really need to find a way to be able to score over him, um, whether it be getting him in foul trouble early by hammering the ball into Josh or just, you know, really aggressively attacking the hoop and see what happens. I mean, it's not going to be any less effective than they've shown in the past because they've really been ineffective with against him in the lineup. Um, the overall general story to me is the, just uh, obviously with game day in Arizona uh, coming to town on Saturday, the Arizona State game seems to have really kind of lost some appeal among the fans. And to me, it's arguably just as important, if not more important, for CU um, – as we go down the course of the schedule. I mean, you look at Arizona State, they're now a top 30 RPI school. They've beaten us three straight times. Their big man knocked our big man unconscious last year. I'm just, I'm a little surprised that there isn't more of a hatred from the fan base going towards Arizona State because they've really given us some trouble in the past couple of years. I mean, I know me personally, I don't like them at all. I don't like Pachinski. I don't like Herb Sendek. He's just a big whiner to me. I, I just hate everything about him. And I, I hope that people show up for this game because there, there's nothing that can affect a game more in Coors Event Center than a raucous crowd. I mean, you've seen time, time, time and time again, we've really just pushed this team over to wins that, it may, you know, it looked like, you know, four years ago, we wouldn't have won a lot of these games because they just didn't have the support. And the, the students and the fans really have an opportunity to really push this team into its 20th win of the season. Um, you know, one step closer to the NCAA tournament. And we really need people there, not only on Saturday, but on Wednesday, too, because it, this this is a we – haven't, we haven't been able to win a game against a tournament team without Spencer so far this year. This is a good opportunity to do so. And while we have an opportunity against Arizona also, it's, it's, it's an extremely important game for our resume um, to stay alive in the NCAA tournament. So those are our top storylines for the week. Guys, it's time to kind of get down into more analysis and, and deeper, more specific talk. We're going to start with Xavier Tolton. Now, Tyler, it was not long ago that you and I were on this very show yeah. having an interesting conversation about mixing in Jerron Hopkins into various lineups and, and incorporating Xavier Tolton into being a starter. And we've since settled that debate the last time we were on the sure. show. I don't know what your prediction for Xavier Talton was in terms of how good he could be as a starter, given the confidence to kind of run the show a little bit. But I know that for me, I did not see this coming. Xavier Talton has been more than just a guy that you plug into the lineup to bring the ball down the court, pass it off to a ski booker, and hide in the corner. He's been more than somebody who just doesn't screw up. He has turned into a really solid Pac-12 guard. I mean, really solid. He was on that court yesterday uh, against USC on Sunday. Did you guys see anybody on USC at the guard spot that was better than him? I mean, JT Terrell has all the talent in the yeah, world. Pichon Howard not, being out helps. Right, absolutely. Also. But on that court, he was... He was Better than any guard USC had. Against Utah, he was plenty effective. Against Washington, he was as good or better than Andrew Andrews. Oh, yeah. Against Washington State, I, Devontae Lacey is really, really good. You know, so I, I, and they're different players. But the point is, 
is that Xavier Tolton is now one of the more reliable guys on this team. And granted, the sample size is not tremendously large, but Xavier Tolton has been spectacular recently. When I look at him, none of these numbers are going to blow you away. In his last five games, he scored 14, 10, 9, 3, and 14. Kind of blows me away. <laughs> but he, but if you if you you don't know Xavier Tolton, you don't know CU, and you just look at those numbers, you're like, all right, that's fine. That's fine production for a starting point guard. I mean, assist-wise, 3-0-3-1-1. That doesn't blow us away. Steals three in the past five games. Rebounds. He had a spectacular rebounding game against USC. But other than that, against UCLA, Washington, Washington State, and Utah, 2-3-0-3. Those numbers don't blow you away. But here is what should. Field goal percentage in his last five. 80%, 50%, 60%, 50%, 62.5%. <laughs> From three, let's go over it again. 66.7%, 
Xavier Talton is an, is a solid three point shooter. I think the past five games he's shooting the ball better than you'll see him do for his career. Obviously, he's he's been unconscious. Yeah, he's shooting sixty five. Right. Yeah, that's that's not going to continue um, going forward. But as I've said before in previous arguments, it's almost not even about him putting up huge numbers in this role. It's about him plugging in a missing hole of the offense. You know, the off- the offense, he can have zero points in a game, and the offense just runs more smoothly with him on the court. There's less there's less panic when people go into a press when Eskia and Xavier Talton are on the court because they both have confidence in each other that they can bring the ball up the floor. I, th- I think Xavier is a plus defender right now. Um, he, he still needs to work on staying out of foul trouble it's a little bit. not quite there yet. Yeah, yeah. And, and, he, and he, he takes probably a little too many gambles. Um, but in spurts, he's very effective guarding the perimeter, and that's something we needed as well. Obviously, Jaron has done a good job in the past couple of games as well of really finding his group defensively. Um, to, to me, it's it's not... I'm not surprised to see him play well in extended minutes. Um, he's shooting the ball better than obviously anybody would expect. But I'm really not surprised by how effective the offense has been with him on the floor, just because his skill set matches what this team needed at that position right now. You made a point right there that I really want to touch on real quick, guys, before we move on, is extended minutes for him. I mean, you look at his game log through the course of the season, he doesn't have a lot of games where he's playing more than 20 minutes. He had two before conference play. He had two before Spencer Dinwiddie goes down with the injury. And in games where he is playing more than 20 minutes, he's only had one kind of eh game. And really, that would probably... I mean, Washington State, he obviously didn't log over 20 minutes, but that was since Dinwiddie went out. It was against UCLA the first time. He wasn't great, but still, with a reserve guard, he, he was reserved that game at least. I mean, five points, four assists... He'll take that from a reserve guard. Every other game, when he's over 20 minutes, Jackson State, 13 points. Uh, where else? Elon, 9.6 rebounds. Of course, this recent uh, stretch of games. I mean, he's a guy who's almost like, hey, now I'm given the chance to kind of find my rhythm on the court. He has some leeway now that he can make a mistake, and he's no longer looking to the scorer's table to see for someone coming in. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing yeah. for me is in the past you could see Tad Boyle he makes a mistake or Askia Booker makes a mistake, Askia stays on the floor. Xavier Talton gets yanked early yep. in the year every single time. And that, not to like question how Tad coaches, but that does stunt your development. You know, you need, you need to have the opportunity to make those mistakes and have confidence that the coach is going to let you work through those moments. I mean, as you said, I think the reason that I started to really like Xavier Talton's game is every time he did see extended minutes on the court, he was really productive. Um, even still, he's not... He has games where he makes too many mistakes and speeds himself up a little bit too much, but that's to be expected. He's a young guard, and you know he's he's taking on more roles. He's not going to be perfect every game, but I mean, you look at the last five games. We haven't touched on this yet. He has eight turnovers in the last five games. Not a super outstanding number by any means, but from, but from the number two guard, yeah, he's he's got the ball a lot now. That's well under two a game. That's really respectable. I mean. That's what you want to see. I mean, if, if you compared that to Askia Booker's numbers, it'd be way better. Yeah. Which is, you know, that's to be expected a little bit, you can say, too, just because Askia... That's who he is. He's, yeah, he's, he's attacking a lot more. And the ball he's, is in his yeah, hands he's, so he's a more aggressive player. So that's not super surprising. But to me, that type of pace over a five-game stretch is exactly what you want from Xavier Tall. You know, he's, he's not making the mistakes that some of these other freshmen are making with the ball in their hands on a continual basis. 
and he's he's done a good job of hitting the open shot. I think I think obviously teams have not yet adjusted to the fact that he's now a big focal point of the offense. He's hitting those open shots. He's going to see less of those as time goes on. He's going to have to do a better job of penetrating off the dribble and finding the right guy. Um, so we'll see. I'd like to see if he can continue that now that people are probably going to be looking at him a little harder in scouting reports. But he'll find a way to do it. He's he's proven time and time again that he, uh, more than anyone on this roster, has has taken his game to the next level outside of the expectation that was placed on him preseason. So moving on to our next guy that we're going to look at in this focus, Askeel Booker. Nobody takes more crap from the fan base than a ski book. I think Took. Yeah, yeah, Took. Yeah, Dustin I, Thomas I agree. has taken over. I agree. <laughs> but over over the last three years, his freshman year, not so much, just because he was reserved. But he, he had moments freshman year where people would drive people nuts. Uh, and certainly last year, and much of it deserved. And, God, I mean, early this year, he was taking a lot of flack and the reality is this. When we look at a Skia Booker, specifically since Spencer Dinwiddie went down, you could make the argument that he is playing as well as anybody in the conference. You should make the argument. I, sa- I mean, I said before this trip to Los Angeles, I said, if he goes out there and he plays the way he's been playing, he deserves at least a mention when, when you, you know, when you throw up the graphic of Pac-12 Player of the Year running. Askia Booker, in my opinion, now deserves to be in that picture. Yeah, I agree 100%. I think if you t- if you name five guys, he's going to be he's not going to be your number one guy. I don't think that's reasonable to suggest, but he should be getting more attention for how well he's playing right now than he's getting. Guys, if if you look at his game log, we have before Spencer Dinwiddie went out, one, two, three games in single digits, and really. Washington, he had zero. Half of the game was without Spencer Dinwiddie. Half of it was with. I, I'm tempted to just kind of throw that one out. He doesn't have a single game where he's shooting where he scored less than ten points since Dinwiddie was out. He also his lowest assist number since Spencer Dinwiddie went out on January 12th is four, and that was against Arizona. And that was a game where, you know, frankly, we saw Ski go into the mode Ski goes into when the team is trailing. You know, but, God, he's playing so well. He has taken over a, a kind of hybrid point guard role that we never really saw from him. And Tad Boyle said today that he feels like he is playing his best ball of, the, of his career. And finally, I think his overall numbers on the season are reflecting what I have long thought to be by far. Statistically, it was always going to be his best year. He's playing more minutes than he ever has. He's going to score more points than he ever has. All that stuff. I get that. But let's look at a few things. He's shooting a career high from the field, despite seeing a reduction in playing time by two minutes from a year ago. He's obviously not shooting a career high from beyond the arc. But going into conference season, and even a month and a half ago, he was shooting 24%. From three lead. So he's obviously risen that to 31%. That's impressive. And by far, the most important statistic that shows how far Ski has come. I get the assist numbers are a career high and they look great. That's big. And all the respect in the world for, to Ski for that. 
but it is his free throws attempted per game and his free throw percentage. And Tyler is shaking or is nodding his head here. He's shooting a career high 80.7% from the charity strike and averaging a career high 4.2 attempts per game. Now, Ski's game will never be Spencer Dinwiddie. Spencer Dinwiddie was all about getting to the rack. Spencer rarely settled for pull-up jumpers. He was a guy who either scored at the rim or scored from beyond the arc or at the foul line. Ski can score much more effectively in the mid-range, or he's more willing to shoot from the mid-range than Spencer ever has. So his, his numbers at the line are going to be less in terms of attempts and ultimately makes. But I make this point because this was a big-time emphasis of Tad Boyle even before Spencer went out. We, on this show, talked about how much better a ski booker has gotten at finishing around the rim and creating contact around the rim. And it seems like he's really settled into that role. And guys, i got to say, I, I mean, obviously, we all wish well for these players because, uh, you know, they're personable, they're nice, and we like working around them. But I, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that if a ski booker keeps up anything like this next year, He's got to be in the conversation preseason as player of the year in the conference. I mean, legitimately, he's been exceptional. Yeah, I mean, if he plays like this, look at I mean, look at some of these 18.7 assists, you know, 26 points, 5 assists, 20.7 assists, 16 points, 12 assists. That's, I mean, that's conference player of the year conversation right now. Like I said, he's playing at an absolute, you know, a level that I don't think most people knew that he could do that. Yeah. You know, everyone knows he can make that. He can make threes and he can make mid-range jumpers. And now this year, we've known that uh, he gets to the he gets to the rack very effectively, and he's finishing a lot more effectively. But you know, a lot of people say like, once a player is uh, is that type of player, it's hard to change. And he almost at the drop of a hat changed from a, a volume shooter. You know, I'm throwing up quotes to Hey, Bill Walton said it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and he's the uh, be-all, yeah, end-all. Yeah, he's now a distributor and, and a player that makes everyone around him better. And that you, I don't think you can say enough about how impressive that is to just like that, with the snap of a finger, change who you are as a basketball player. Tyler, I want to ask you a question. I, you know, I know we're kind of running long on this segment, but i got to ask you. If a ski booker can play kind of this combo guard position where he's not totally a two... And he's kind of becoming more of a, a, a point guard that we see in the mold of a Jihee Carson, guys like that. This is crazy, I know. At what point do we start talking about, after his senior year, the NBA draft? <laughs> uh, we don't. I had to go there. It's been we way don't. too positive. We've got yeah. to take a, a different angle in this. We don't. And it's not really oh, anything about Ski's game. It, He's just not big enough, you know. It's, it's, it's. He's a great college player. There's hundreds of great college players that just don't have the game to translate to the NBA. You know, I mean, I, I think what are the chances higher now than they were six months ago? Absolutely, they are. There's no question about that. But I mean, we'll see what he does his senior year because you know sometimes guys blow up their senior year and they get a look in the second round. It's not going to be a first round pick. I know zero percent chance of that. Um, you know, and maybe some team decides they like his style of play and they fit into a spot on the roster that they want. But yeah, it's just you know it's hard. It's hard, it's hard to yeah, it's, hard, it's hard to like answer this question without take him taking it personally. You know, if you were to listen to it, but it's just one of those things where he's a six foot combo guard. That's not all that, you know, 
he's he's not all that efficient from the floor. It's you can you can find those type of players if you're in the NBA from a guy who's six five. You know what I mean? So it's it's just it's just tough for him because you know it's not like he can do anything about his size. Um, you know, but he plays that that super effectively in college. I think the, going back to the original topic, I think even he would say looking back at how he's played since having to take over for Spencer Dinwiddie, that he would understand some of the criticism he's received in previous seasons. Because people saw this type of game potential from him. I think he would say, having been successful at it, he would understand some of the frustration. And I think he know he knows you know, what type of player he is on the yeah. court and sometimes he's going to be hot. I, I think the misnomer here is that he's more, he is obviously more of a distributor given his assist numbers, but he's also taking more shots. He just has the ball a lot more, and he's done a good job of getting people involved. I mean, we haven't even talked about the fact that he's averaging five rebounds a game, too. I, I, I was which just is looking like, at that. It's ridiculous. It's, yeah, it, it's since Spencer's taken over, which is crazy. Um, he was always a better rebounder than Spencer. Um, but still, I mean, he's taken his, le- his level up that much farther in everything you see. And the turnover numbers are high. But that's a product of his aggressiveness and the fact that he is now by far the main distributor of this team. You know, he's getting to the free throw line more because he's aggressively attacking the rim. And, you know, because of that, you're going to see more turnovers. And I'm not, I've said this before, I'm not concerned. If someone has six turnovers on this team, it's got to be a skateboarder. And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, probably. But it, it just means that he's the ball. He, we trust, we need to trust him to be the guy to make plays. And, and you're going to see some turnovers along with that just because of how he plays the game. Guys, the next name on the list, we just, we're a little bit running over here, but the next name on the list is Xavier Johnson, and we we can kind of keep this a little bit quicker. I'm extremely impressed with Xavier Johnson. In the last six or so games, he's averaging 19 and 7, which we've always known Xavier Johnson has the pure talent to do, and he can shoot from deep. He can attack the rim. He's actually been much more fluid off the dribble lately than I think he ever has been. I don't know exactly what it is, and it's not the absence of West Gordon, I'll tell you that much. But I don't know exactly what it is in the sense of it. his angles are different. His quickness is different. He's not trying to pound, pound, pound. It's one dribble, use my ridiculously long legs and long arms to sneak, to pick up my dribble at the right elbow and end up on the left side of the rim in a step. No, that's what he's trying to do. So my question to you guys is this, real quick: If he continues to play like this, is CU all of a sudden a much, how much more dangerous are they going down the stretch than maybe if he's a ten and five guy every night? Well, I, go ahead. I think it's night and day difference. Um, he is that third guy, and it doesn't mean he's the third option. But he, you know, you've got Ski and you've got Josh. You have to have that third guy. And if your third guy is giving you 19 and 7, you, you're a dangerous team in the Pac-12. You're a dangerous team in the NCAA tournament. It's all about consistency, though, for Xavier. If he can keep that rolling, then it's, com- it's a completely different uh, Colorado team. I'd like to see him get just a little better with his touch around the rim. Yeah. Um, you know, he makes those moves like you talk about where he rips it from the right elbow, takes two steps, and then he'll clank it off the backboard and it's going the other way. If he, you know, puts in just that extra effort and starts floating those in and then, you know, make sure his feet are set when he's shooting three-pointers because I swear there there's probably like a 75% percentage difference between when he sets his feet and when he tries to come off a curl and shoot a three. If he starts doing those things, you know, 
this team, uh, this, I mean, I don't want to necessarily say the sky is the limit, but their ceiling is much, much higher. Yeah, I think the one thing with Xavier that you've seen throughout his career at Colorado is whenever there's a big game coming up and you need a performance from somebody, Xavier Johnson is almost always that guy that shows up in the big moment. And, you know, sometimes you need to he needs to be pushed a little bit, and you see, like, he, he takes a couple, not, he doesn't take a couple games off, but he's just not producing. And then Spencer Dinwiddie injury happens, and he has to show up. And, and other than the first two games, he has. Yeah, I, mean, I think it took him a little while to adjust, but he, he's figured it out now. He, he has, he causes mismatches offensively and defensively, and that's really where I think his game has picked up. He's found ways to be effective on the perimeter defensively, which he hadn't in the past. Um, in spots, making lives difficult for the other guy on the floor. And he's, uh, Ryan mentioned this, and I've talked about this with him before too, that when he sets his feet on the perimeter, he is a very good long-distance shooter. But he doesn't do it much. <laughs> so if you can get his shot in rhythm, he's, he's a really effective player. And he has done a good job of attacking the rim, especially going to his left. And he, he's, he has so much more length. I mean, you see time and time again he reaches out and he's two feet farther than you think he is and he has a wide open layup when he's really being guarded. So he just needs he, he continue what he's doing. This team is going to be very, very dangerous, especially at home. Guys, Dustin Thomas and Strobe. Wait, I think that's putting it lightly. Again, moving kind of quickly. Do we see him breaking out of that before the end of the season? Uh, at this point, I, I don't think so. Um, I think... Dustin is, you know, he's absolutely capable of it, um, but he's so far into his own head right now. Like I said, he's hoping for shots to go in. He's not expecting shots to go in. And as a shooter, there's not a worse mindset that you can have. Um, I, I, mean, I watched him today as we were talking to Coach Boyle, knock down and like, I think it was eight threes in a row, just, you know, shooting around by himself. He's absolutely capable of knocking the shots, but when it comes to game time, right as he's about to shoot the ball, it just seems like there's a thought, oh no, I hope I don't miss this. And that just can't happen. Something has to turn on where, you know, he gets into a rhythm like Xavier Talton did where you knock down a couple in a game and then you have to do it the next game and then maybe one game after that and then you're in that groove. Right now, he's just so deep into his own head. It's, it's going to take an off season, I think for him to kind of clear his thoughts and reset everything and get back to where he was. Yeah, I mean, at this point, you just kind of feel bad. You feel bad for him because he has the ability to make it happen. And it's gotten to the point now that it's affected his overall game. I mean, he not only is he not shooting the ball effectively now, he's he, he has gotten – he's regressed defensively. He's regressed rebounding. And if he just gets back to kind of focusing on that and helping this team in one area, I think it will really help his psyche. I mean, he – the thing is, with Wes out, he's asked to do a little more, obviously. With Wes back, his, he doesn't need to do much in his role, you know? Like, he, he's, he's not asked to do anything crazy. And hopefully with Wes returning, that, that'll help him a little bit. Just kind of, you know, he can focus on one thing and give you a, a solid three- or four-minute stretch. And hopefully that'll kind of build on it. But I agree. I mean, at this point, it's, he's so far in his own head. It's, it's hard to really see him con continuously improving and becoming uh, the player that we all thought he could preseason. So guys, when we we look forward to the ASU and U of A games coming up this week, uh, two injuries to keep an eye on, of course. Wesley Gordon 
Uh, Ty Boyle said today he's about 85%, Ryan. He, he yep. told you that. And then uh, Fletcher. And he told me that he, does, he doesn't expect Trey to be back in the fold um, this week. He said he's coming along. He's been shooting a little bit, jogging a little bit. But at this point, um, he's, he doesn't see him playing against either of the Arizona schools this week. Guys, what do we what do we see as the keys to Arizona? Um, Arizona State, rather, actually. Uh, we'll, we'll touch on first. Arizona State has really kind of come on as one of the better teams of the Pac-12. I mean, what, they're 6-1 six, six and one in their last seven or something? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're like pretty that. high. I mean, they're second in the league right now, just a half game behind UCLA. So they've, they've really separated themselves, you know, unless – if we take them out, we'll be tied. But they actually will have a tie with the Arizona win. And, and it's four of their last five that they've won. Uh, but Arizona State really getting – actually, it's not four of their last five. I don't know what I'm talking about. What the number is here? I'm looking at the wrong page. Out of their last, okay, yeah, it is six of their last seven. I wasn't crazy. Um, I was looking at Colorado's uh, schedule. Uh, so six of their last seven. Obviously, their lone loss coming 76 to 70 in Palo Alto against Stanford. And there are two names that you think about when you think about Arizona State, and it's Jordan Pachinski and Jaheim Carson. Uh, both of whom gave Colorado some trouble uh, in Tempe when Arizona State won 72-51. to 51. Really one of the worst performances we've seen all year out of this Colorado Buffaloes team. Uh, Jahe Carson finishes with 18, six, 18 points, 6 rebounds, 4 assists. Pachinski, a modest night offensively, just 9 points, but 6 rebounds and 3 blocks. He didn't affect the game nearly as much as I expected him to. But the guy who really was kind of like the silent assassin uh, for the Buffs was none other than Jonathan Gilling. 12 points, 4 of 4 from beyond the arc. Gilling is not a guy that you can let go off on you. I mean, he's just not good enough. You know, he'll, he hits a 3 against you, okay, you know, you're helping down on G. Carson. I get one, one a game. But if you're getting abused by Jonathan Gilling, you've got some defensive problems. Arizona State... What's the big key? What is the key matchup that will decide this game? Not, I mean, because Josh Scott and Jordan Pachinski is a big matchup. I get that. But when I look at the one that really decides this game, I, I got to say, Xavier Talton or Askia Booker on Jermaine Marshall is going to be incredibly interesting to watch. Marshall wasn't exactly huge against the Buffs last time out. When he did pour 29 points in, against the Wildcats when Arizona State beat Arizona uh, last week. So it's going to be interesting to see how they can kind of contain him. If either Gilling or Marshall goes off, I mean, those two combining for, what, 20 points last time out? Yeah, 20 points. It's unacceptable. If they combine for 20 or more points this week on Wednesday, Colorado loses this game. That's, that is the key. You can live with J.E. Carson having a big night because he – He's going to have big nights against just about everybody. But you can't live with secondary players killing you. That's my key mark, matchup of the game. I think, uh, and it kind of plays into yours a little bit, but to me it's just defending the perimeter. Um, like you said, you can't allow Jonathan Gilling to just knock down shots on you. And the thing with him is you just you can't be helping off of him because your closeouts, he's a big shooter, and your closeouts aren't going to be effective on him unless you're literally right in his face. So for him, you've you got to stay with him 
most of the time because he's one of those guys who, you know, he's just going to shoot right over you and, and knock down threes. He's not he's not a guy that's going to create his own shot. And then guys like uh, Marshall, you know, he doesn't score 20, 29 points without pouring in a, a couple of threes. If you keep them at bay on the perimeter, Jahi Carson isn't a great three-point shooter. Then I think you you get, uh, you, you know, you make them one-dimensional where they're having to slash in there. Josh Scott, you know, he's become a much better shot blocker. I think they can keep, you know, their bigs at bay. Um, last, last time Wesley Gordon played probably his worst defense of the season, I think you guys would probably agree with that. And I don't, I don't see that happening again. I, so I think if they defend the perimeter and make sure ASU stays cold, then they're going to be okay. But that, it's really important to get out there early because, like I said on Twitter last week, ASU's coming into the course event center like like that's their house. Like they own the place. They feel like they own Colorado. Uh, Herb Sendak feels like he has Tad Boyle's number. They're coming in there with tons of confidence. If you let them get out there and start knocking down threes early, then you're you're gonna just boost that confidence even more. Keep them at bay on the perimeter and, and I think Colorado wins this game. Yeah, I hate to kind of pile on with everybody else's comments, but it's really it's really the truth. I mean they have five guys on their whole entire roster that you even have to remotely worry about. They play most of those guys for most of the game, so you got to be aggressive offensively, get them in foul trouble a little bit. And the thing for me is on the perimeter, you got to force guys to make tough shots. You're at home almost just from a numbers perspective. They're gonna, the, the chance of them shooting the ball as well as they do at home is, is less. So you gotta, you got to further improve that by putting pressure on them defensively. Um, I would disagree with Ryan. Jake Carson is a very solid three-point shooter. He's a 40% free throw, or a three-point shooter, but he's only a 44% shooter overall. Um, he doesn't finish that well at the rim. Obviously, he has similar issues with a ski and that he's a smaller guard. We need to be able to trust Wes Gordon and Josh Scott to, to take care of the paint down low and really force him to make tough shots. Um, we can't be giving you know uh, Jermaine Marshall and G. Carson wide open looks from three, especially Marshall is a 44% three-point shooter. you got to run him off the line and really trust the back end of your defense to, to, to not necessarily block 10 shots a game, but just make their life tougher in the lane, make them take some tougher shots. Now, I would love to spend more time talking about Arizona State because I think this game is absolutely huge, but we got to talk about Arizona, guys. I mean, we're not going to do another show before Arizona. The history of this rivalry dates back, of course, to the first time these two teams played. And it was in the Coors Event Center. It was a one-point game. Kevin Parham airballing a three from the right corner uh, at the buzzer, of course not going in, and the Buffs escaping. Carlin Brown had a huge game that day, uh, a number of key buckets down the stretch. Uh, also, there was a pretty solid uh, Arizona fan contingent in the course. A very solid. That I, that, I was really impressed. And Arizona fans came into Boulder like they owned the place. Because Arizona fans go just about everywhere thinking they own the place. Uh, of course, then the Buffs go down to Tucson, get blown out. And then the two teams meet again in the Pac-12 championship game. Colorado again wins by a single point. Uh, it, one basket game. A tremendous game, sending them to the NCAA tournament. Then the next year. The Sabatino chen Bank shot blowout game, apparently, according to Will here. <laughs> We're talking about it. You just no. said they got blown out. In Tucson, the first year. Year one, year one. That was really? Yeah, oh, yeah, they lost by like 17, 18 points. All right, well, sorry. Get out of here. My, it was uh, worse than the score. Apparently, my memory is I'm older than I think. So, last year, the first game of the conference season, the Colorado Buffaloes go into Tucson and 
the Sabatino chair, the situation happens. The two match up later that year in Boulder for the Valentine's Day Massacre game, and the Buffaloes did just that, taking it to the Wildcats in every facet of the game. The two meet up again in the Pac-12 tournament in the quarterfinals, and while the game was extremely competitive for most of it, Arizona pulls away in the last two minutes, ending up winning by about 10, and of course going on to the semifinals where they would lose uh, in the Pac-12 semifinals. So, these teams have a lot of history together. Uh, these players, all, most of these guys played against each other in high school. Xavier Johnson made some bold, bold comments after the last game, saying that it would be a blowout when the Arizona Wildcats came to town, uh, saying that he doesn't like them and they don't like him. Guys, that was awesome, by the way. with those quotes, with Arizona being a top five team, with the Buffaloes without Spencer Denning, everything that goes into this game. I'm tempted to say this is the most interesting matchup of the two. It's not going to be the best. I think last year, those two games were the best matchups. The best games were the year before, of course. But this is the most interesting because you have an Arizona team that is also dealing with the loss of a star. And they are looking to regain their footing. You have the Buffaloes kind of making a little bit of a surge here without Dinwiddie looking to close out the regular season strong. National title contender against a team holding on to its NCAA hopes. Arizona, Colorado, two fan bases that don't like each other. And, of course, you can't talk about this game storylines without mentioning that ESPN game day will be in Boulder. Ryan, you do not think that this is the most interesting game. No, I, I just don't think you can beat the, that Valentine's Day massacre. I mean, CU fans were angry. Like, they're excited about this game. They were angry about that game. I mean, they wanted... They wanted to, I mean, the fans wanted to go out there and rip Arizona's throats out. Like, that was, that was cool. I mean, that was one of the, that's probably the rowdiest game I've seen in the Coors Spencer. Just, there was just a different edge about the Colorado fan base in that game. And it was just anger. And I loved it. This game, yeah, I mean, it's college game day. You can't understate that, even though I think the fans might be trying to. But this game, while it's like that, it, the, the matchup isn't as close. The anger isn't there. It's still a good rivalry. It's still an exciting matchup, but I just don't think it lives up to the Valentine's Day Massacre. I mean, it had its own name. I mean, the hype isn't there for this, but I don't think the hype is what makes the game interesting. You have to go beyond that. I'm on a campaign of no hype in 2014. All real in 2014. And this game has more real-life storylines beyond the fans, beyond a controversy of matchups of two teams going in opposite directions with similar situations. I, I can't get over yeah. how interesting this matchup I, I is. I will say I think Xavier's a little lucky that Brandon Ashley won't be playing in this game. Um, they've really looked much worse with him out of the lineup. I mean, they're, they're a vulnerable team right now. There's no doubt about it. I mean, it would not shock me at this point to see us beat him in the course of Event Center. I, I think they're not going to win by twenty. No, I don't. I don't think. But, but I mean, I, I think. I think we honestly we match up better with him. Like to me, the guy that we need to worry about is Nick Johnson. If we can, if we can keep Nick Johnson from getting twenty points, I like our chances in this game. We can defend other guys on the floor, especially with Brandon Ashley out. They they struggle to score a little bit, and and they're obviously a great defensive team. But at home, we always just seem to find a way to at least get out in transition and get the crowd involved. But this Buffalo team isn't very efficient, uh, explosive offensively. 
And lately they have been a little bit more. But I think it's going to be a low-scoring game, and I think we have more scoring power than they do. Right now? At at home? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. I I would say so. I I think, think, like I said, if we can get Nick Johnson off his game, the rest of their offense really just falls apart. They they don't – I mean, they have obviously very talented players. Most of these guys that are NBA prospects, it isn't because they're exploding the ball – explosive on offense. If Spencer Dinwiddie – is on the floor in this game. I almost think the Buffs might be favored. They are. They would. They would be. Yeah. yeah. And I would almost pick them by double digits. Yeah. Colorado would be in the top fifteen in the country right now, and they would absolutely be favored against yeah. I think you know another. You talked about their offense really falling apart. You also have to keep their their six man energy. Gabe York. I think you have to keep make sure he doesn't start shooting all over you. Um, because he's someone who can open up their offense and kind of spread them out and then start getting looks for guys like Tarzewski and Gordon underneath. What I think could be a blessing in disguise that Brandon actually is a capable three-point shooter. He didn't shoot much. But Sean Miller just said this week that he's going to use a deeper rotation this week. Obviously with the altitude of being a road trip, I'm not surprised. But I almost think that is a benefit to them because you are obviously going to give Gabe York some extended minutes. He is by far the best three-point shooter on that team, and he's a very good three-point shooter. Um, but you're also bringing in a guy that Colorado fans don't know about, uh, at least not the ones that are die-hard, dissect every team you play, uh, and that's Elliot Pitts. We recruited. Yes. Elliot Pitts is a knockdown shooter, and he will sit in that corner, Wait for you to collapse, and when Arizona grabs the offensive rebound, which they will do against teams, they'll do it against everybody. Buffalo's have to try to limit that, but Arizona, Arizona got like eight offensive rebounds in the first five minutes last matchup. If they start doing that and kicking out to Pitts, kicking out to York, even Johnson and McConnell, Arizona could have Arizona's guards could have a big day if that's the case, because that's their offense on the first look. I would not be worried about it if I'm at anybody in the country going. It's their say, second look that is so good. Yeah, I'll say if, if McConnell beats us shooting threes, more power to you on that. I mean, that's that's one of those – you have to live with that. Well, of I course. I, I have to say, I wouldn't be – I would be kind of excited to see Xavier Johnson walk into the media room having gone for 25 points, 10 rebounds, and the Buffs happen to beat Arizona by 20 points. I just want to see – what he says, <laughs> like what, like just that, like I can just see this like swagger walk where he comes up in the chair, kind of throws. Them. I just want to see what would happen if that's gonna have a big grin. That's for sure. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. Now he, of course, said that the media misquoted him, but I've listened to the tape recorder. If it happens, he'll he'll take it. He'll take credit for it again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, uh, as we wrap up the last couple of minutes of our show, uh, the last storyline that I wanted to talk about was the relative lack of hype around this game from a fan standpoint. Now, you have your diehards that anytime you say Arizona, doesn't matter what the ticket costs, doesn't matter where the game's being played, they're going to go to that game, and they're going to be loud, and they're going to be excited. But attendance overall this year has been down. From students to season ticket holders, it's been noticeable through this conference season that attendance has been down, even when Spencer Dinwiddie was in the lineup. So spare me from that excuse personally. Now, they have also dealt with some weird tip times this year. They have. 
I would also say, I mean, it's always a little rough around Christmas. That's, oh, so, so that's, that's always going to be. We didn't have a whole lot of home games against quality teams. For, you know, obviously besides Kansas, so that so that affects the attendance a little bit. I wouldn't have said it was so bad because they didn't they didn't early. play a home conference game with Spencer Yeah, they did. They, they played two. They played two, and it was but during were, that. It was during break. So that that's the one thing. Like, I'm not. It it has gotten worse noticeably since they did. It has gotten worse, and so I say this: attendance for every sport across the country is down. Regardless of where you are, even SEC football is struggling to keep its students in the football stadiums. So, guys, my question is this: and Ryan, I know you're going to really shed a lot of light on this tomorrow, the column that you're going to be running. And I want to save the poll questions and most of that for tomorrow. So, people, you got to read this column; it's going to be great. Um, what do you, what do you have to say about the fact that today, less than a week before the game against Arizona? What's often one of the most hyped-up games of the year. Not only are there still student tickets available, but there's not a buzz. There's not a buzz around this game on social media, on BuzzStampede.com, anywhere. Talk about your thoughts on that. To me, there's a couple things that go into it. One, the average fan, and I know you said you don't, you want to hear this excuse, the average fan, when they saw Spencer Dinwiddie go down, to them the season was over. And they probably ha- haven't been to many games since then. They don't know what this team is capable of, and they've kind of just put it on the back burner in their mind. And, and you know, maybe that's that's not an, a great excuse for the season ticket holders, but it's just it's just what I think happened with the students, just from the buzz that I've heard around campus. Um, and secondly, I, I really think, and it's sad that they have to, but I don't think that the university communicated to the students very well how, how to get tickets and, and what the process was. It was kind of an interesting process. You had to log on to the, this online you know, um, website and you had to get a number and whatever, that whole situation. It was kind of a finicky thing that wasn't very clear to the students and it was one of those things that if it wasn't, you know, if you're not that diehard student where you, as soon as you saw that email, you marked it right down in your calendar or set a reminder on your phone, you, it kind of just fell into the back of your mind and, and it didn't really register for you. So I think with a multitude of those things, it just it, it just kind of lost its momentum from that. And it's a kind of a sad excuse for a, a school that's trying to almost get that basketball school motto. You know, every day you're seeing CUNIT on Twitter saying that we're the best student they're section. Not. No, they're not. But we, they're won't, not. we don't need to get into that. They're really not. I, I almost want to get into it because it's ridiculous. Don't make me get into it. It's absolutely ridiculous that not only <laughs> he's going to get into it. I'm yeah, going to get into it because here's so. the thing. Look, CU does, in some ways, this year takes need to take some responsibility for how things have gone because there has been, you know, with Mike Bone prided himself on that on the building of the CU. Mike Bone. Mike Bone. <laughs> No, he did. But, guys, I'm sorry. When you are 18 to 22 years old and you need a free trip anywhere to any game for any circumstance to justify spending two and a half hours of your life twice a week, not even every week, supporting watching the the best team on campus. That's what the team it's like and really? watching a good product, not even just the best crappy yeah. team on campus, a good team. If it takes that much to go to a game for two hours to cheer, 
to have some drinks beforehand and go with your friends, then guess what? You're a crappy student fan. You're a crappy student section. If you are not even half full for the last three home games that you had, not even half full, I'm sorry, but if you have a thousand open seats in your student section every night since Spencer Dinwiddie got hurt, you're not the best student session. I don't want to rock your colors, and nobody else should vote for you for some stupid award. Guess what? You're average. You're average. The, the first 12 rows of kids who show up every night, kudos to them. They are great. But guess what? The stu- if, the, if they are the C unit, and that's all the C unit is, then they're not the best student section in the country either. They are a collection of a couple hundred really good fans, and everybody else sucks. But guess what? When you run the C unit, when you run the Twitter, when you campaign for all this crap, you have to take responsibility for them. Because guess what? Every team in the world has diehards, but some fan bases are not as good as others. Colorado C unit, you are not as good as others. Time to take responsibility and stop pimping yourself up and acting too good to show up to games because you're not getting anything for free. Because guess what? You're spoiled rotten. All real. So Will, no, no hype. No hype. Will has been spending a lot of time inside my head in the past two weeks, clearly. Because we all know that this is pretty much, that's pretty much my exact thoughts on it as well. I mean, I was sitting at student section for every single game my whole college career. And they sucked. You want to know what I got for it? Maybe like a piece of pizza one time or something. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, we didn't have the point system. We didn't have the honor system. They didn't give us anything. We weren't any good. So if you want to show up to every game from 2005 to 2009 and then let me know how unhappy you are. Um, but, you know, you already hashed on all that. And I, I agree with Ryan to some degree. It's, expectations are a dangerous thing. If, if, if this team was expected to be a bubble team all year, the stands would still be full. But when you see how good this team was with Spencer healthy, and they were well on their way to being in the top 25 for the rest of the season, no question about it. And, and when that goes away, it does take a little bit of luster off the season, and, and, and I get that. But to me, this team has proven that they're still quality. At, and, and the fact that the students haven't come back around to support them and give them that extra push that they can to get them into the NCAA tournament is definitely disappointing. The fact that Cal is a better student. So don't give me the, oh, my God, but the pal up at A-Bay is so gnar. Don't tell me any of that crap. Because guess what? The students at Cal probably couldn't tell you what a travel call is in basketball, yet they're at the game making Cal one of the toughest places to play in the Pac-12 this year. Bro, they don't have that powder, though. But, but they have books. All those kids are expected to be physicians and therapists and surgeons and crap. I don't want to hear it with it is I just don't want to see it on Twitter every day. I just I don't, don't want to see yeah, there's exactly. like 10,000 retweets from the same six people. Yeah, it's I, like, Jesus. Yeah. So... Obviously, that was an emotional topic. Um, read Ryan's column tomorrow on buffstampede.com. Uh, Wednesday, if you're listening to this Wednesday, read it today uh, because you will get his perspective, perspective of the AD, perspective of some students, and some great statistics he compiled from a survey that he ran uh, on social media. And, guys, lots of great discussion today. We, we, I think we really did a great job of breaking down some individual players and performances for the Buffs. As I told Will last night, I did some... 
Matthew McConaughey-esque true detective investigative work for this column. You were waiting to drop that for the last 59 minutes and 30 seconds. Absolutely. I love that show. Guys, thanks for tuning in to Buff Stampede Radio today. Uh, make sure to make it out to the Coors Event Center to catch some basketball Wednesday night and Saturday. Uh, and just so you guys know, game day starts at 6 a.m., I believe, on Saturday. Uh, and, of course, tip-off is later that evening. It's the Wildcats. Thanks for tuning in today, and take care. Show up to both games, please. Fan correspondent Tyler Siskin, everybody. Take care. See you.